Welcome to You Can Grad School. I am Dustin. And I am Kate. And we're happy to have you here with us uh, for today's episode, I believe episode three. Um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about maybe uh, episode two. Sorry. it's. I think it's episode two because we did a zero. episode two. The intro episode is zero, right? There you go. Right. Um, and yeah, so today we're going to be... <laughs> we're going to be talking about open science. Um, So we're just going to talk about how we came to know open science, why we think it's important, uh, talking about um, our own experiences and challenges. Uh, And then, you know, we'll wrap it up with some recommendations. So to start, we're just going to give some of our updates. So Dustin, entering your final year of grad school, what are you doing? Yeah, this was really, really weird. Like, I, this is the last year of being at the university that I'm at, and then I go on internship. So it was kind of anticlimactic with everything that's going on. Um, What I'm up to, though, that could be a little bit more interesting, is I'm writing my prelim proposal document, which I'm a little behind in. I should probably have gotten this done a little bit earlier. Um, and if my advisor's listening, which I don't think he would be, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> stop listening. Yeah, stop listening. Go go do other things. Um, but I've been working on it and have been having some really great progress. Uh, I've struggled with writing, and I think that will be a theme throughout. And I think one of the reasons why I like open science and some of these other topics that we discuss is because it makes the process a little bit easier, at least I think. Um, but I'm doing that. I'm doing clinical work at an externship, which is bizarre that I am helping other people in the world, in the community, and not at the university that I'm at. So that's exciting and scary and all of the other things that go along with an internship in clinical psych. Um, and then my my daughter started school, like we're doing school at home. So that's been fun being like a co uh, teacher. I go on, I go, I got lots of breaks because I have other stuff that I have to do. Um, do you do like a picture? I don't know when I was growing up, I'd always, and in college, oddly enough, uh, I would do like a picture on the first day of school, like with my family and then with my friends. Did you guys do that? Yeah, my wife did. First, we had like this piece of paper where she put her handprints and then we took a picture. Yeah, it was really cute. And then she drew a picture of her family. We were all snowmen. Uh, (laughs) I had lots of snow on mine. I was a very tall snowman and hers had feet. She put feet on hers. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. So she's mobile and we're not. Um, So man, feet on snowmen feels wrong but you know creative yeah. lesson she's an original thinker yeah that's she should true. make her like walk up to the end of the driveway and back as like as if she's waiting for the school bus every morning <laughs> i was this thinking we should prepare her yeah i was thinking we should all get in the car and just drive around the block and then like drop her off at our house would that you wouldn't... leave her for like a few minutes a little like as if it's like drop off and you're leaving or I would, I would be driving and my wife would be at home as like the teacher and like greet her at the door. Yeah, I'm not, we're not terrible parents, Kate. We don't just leave our daughter alone. 
okay listen some families yeah no i yeah like that, mine would leave us alone when we no i'm just kidding my parents are, <laughs> are great um yeah um what I, are you I what are you up to yeah um so i start school next week um because of covid craziness i haven't registered for classes yet and so even though like I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to take, it's still like this odd period where like I'm technically starting school, not technically I am starting school, yeah. but I don't feel like it's happening and mm-hmm. there's, there are no like books to buy. Um, I just have to like wrestle with stunning feelings of inadequacy and concern that I'm not going to be able to do statistics. Um, and uh, just kind of waiting and I'm doing some things each day, but um it's been a while since I haven't had like things to do every day that are like super required of me. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to having people ask me to do things and then grading me on those things. Oddly enough. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. It's a mix of like, I, I can't wait to have some structure <laughs> and organization and like, I hope I'm competent. Um, but yeah, uh, I think I'm probably, I always say this, but I think I'm going to do some more stuff tomorrow with my website. Ooh, uh, exciting calendar um and then after that i'll probably just keep writing and working on applying to an nsf and so kind of front loading that stuff before everything else starts is on my priority list and it's also just been really fun uh i like writing the kind of stuff that you write for grants you've right. talked about this you know i have really different views on this Not that very I've different it, but like it's just it's really fun to imagine like just what you could do and putting like hyping yourself up because you have to say nice things about yourself to say I can do this and so there's some part of this where I write about why they should fund me and why I am particularly deserving and it's very it's like very affirming I'm like yeah I have like I do know what I'm doing um <laughs> so that's like a vacillating back and forth between oh no am I capable of being a graduate student and I'm more than capable. You should give me money to give do me that lots of money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, relatively speaking, lots of money, but you know, yes, anything is more than what, what we make. Yeah. But it's just, it's interesting to be on like the precipice of something new. Um, yeah. and you probably feel it too with applying to internship and this year being functionally different. Yeah, I think so. Or, I just ignore everything. <laughs> you feel different, right? Yeah, feel different. You better. Is that how you talk to your, I feel like talking to your clients could be like, you feel better, right? Yeah, it, we have an hour session. The first five minutes is me doing that. And then uh, them listening to me send emails and catch up on emails. That's fun. It's Most good, yeah listening to organization happen (laughs) yeah um okay so yeah i think that's our those are our updates nothing else going on um we're still in the millionth week of covid so there's that to think about um but yeah so today just to kind of get to the meat of our the middle section the sam what's it what's like the middle of a sandwich called I didn't know there was a name. Like, no, I don't think there is. Wait, what do you call the outside of a sandwich? The, the bread. 
so like you could say to the meat but as a currently practicing vegetarian I just you know I want to be more inclusive to get to the central theme of our episode uh, we're going to talk about OSF today and open science more generally so uh, I think everyone who would be listening to this is probably maybe this is a large assumption so I'm going to walk it back um, that some people, but not all people, might know what open science is. So I consider Dustin Yu to be one of the people who's like really stoked my understanding, and I already had an appreciation for open science, but really expanded that. So I'd be curious to hear about how you first came to learn about open science and what how that has like developed for you. Hmm. These are things that we try to prepare for before, like Kate and I have a conversation beforehand and I'm like, oh yeah, that'll be good. And then I don't think about it anymore until Kate asks the question while we're recording so that you get real I'll give time. You time to think. When we first met, I was like, <laughs> I knew what open science was, but not OSF. Yeah. And the PI of the lab that you're in and that I was formerly in um, was like, oh, you can help prepare the OSF for this project and I was like I responded by emails before I started the job and I was like I'm looking forward to it I can't wait and then immediately googling OSF <laughs> not the first thing that comes up and so I was very confused and then I thought the, there's this like awesome moment where I thought to myself oh everyone in clinical psych must know and use OSF as a huge part of their process because he just sounded like that's something I should know and be already like focused on. Yeah. And in fact, that's not quite the case, but. Not at all. And I think this was, it, it originally started with the, the PI, my advisor, who should still not be listening to this. So get off while you still can. It was something that I knew some of his colleagues had been doing at the university and it started with pre-registration. And we can talk more about that later or now or whatever. But the idea that whenever we started a new paper, he wanted us to pre-register it. And there are no guidelines on how to do this. There are some now. Um, but a few years ago, it was like kind of open. Uh, so we had to, we internally basically created a document, which is, uh, kind of like a an intro and methods section to an article. We've, you really want to, for pre-registration, you're basically pre-registering everything that you'll do. Uh, and you would think maybe this is the first time you're hearing of pre-registration or open science. And you might think that's how science is done. Like you have an idea, you have a hypothesis, you go test that, and then you see if the results match your hypothesis. And Kate, does that happen? No. Uh, <laughs> Don't sound so yeah. sad. I'm sorry. No, no. But like, I think, I think that's really, uh, it's interesting because I think a big part of it is that doesn't happen. It's how it's presented to you in, in middle school and in primary yeah. school, elementary school, and even probably in high school. But then in college, I think, that wasn't the way I saw it. And that's not the way it was explained or as like the gold standard. It's sort of 
like we just forgot how to talk about science and how it's properly done. So because there are so many problems in the field with people actually pre-registering their pre-registering, but like even if they're not actually doing the formal OSF, the informal OSF process of pre-registering, yeah. but people coming up with a hypothesis instead of just looking at a data set, running all of these analyses, and then, I don't know, like the eggs to the wall approach, and then whatever like survives, survives, and that's what gets written up for the gal, and there's post hoc analysis and things like that. It's almost like talking about that or talking about how it should be done. I don't know where I was going with this thought, but like that maybe it like sets up a disappointment or more criticism. So we don't talk about it in that way. Not really sure why, Yeah. but um, I had to unlearn the assumptions I had or like the way that science was done in a professional context. And I had in my first post-bac position where um, there was a lot of running correlations, regressions, things like t-tests, and then seeing what stuck. Um, and, you know, it's kind of disappointing because it's like, it's also like a less fun way of doing things, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think, yeah, it does feel unfun, but also like you feel like you're exploring the data, I think. And like you get to see, oh, let the data. I just imagine like somebody in a room and like like correlation tables all around them and like spinning around and be like, tell me what the story is, data. That's what happens, right? Yeah. Well, no, actually, I had this really interesting experience where I was at a conference and I was sitting in on this what I thought would be really interesting, but then was really frustrating session where two researchers were saying what we looked for was glowing data and they were describing looking for patterns in their data. Hmm. Uh, I'd like to think that maybe I misinterpreted that as like a new open science and undergraduate person, but uh, it, what it sounded like to me was looking for a pattern and not then testing it. Um, I think it's fine to explore data, but then to form hypotheses, but then you need to collect new data to test it or have like a sample a smaller sample within your larger data set, right? Yeah, or just say, hey, we're exploring and we're going to do X, Y, Z, and I'm going to tell you, here's all my R code and these are all the analyses I ran. Um, so you can take this, we can form new hypotheses moving forward to connect, to collect new data, but also not like, yes, this was the story all along. And there was one time when I was hanging a clock in my bathroom and I fell and I hit my head. And the flux capacitor just, I, I just knew it. <laughs> Back to the future in case anybody didn't get you. <laughs> didn't, yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things with these, these presentations of the data. And you can, they look at all the data and they try to find these patterns. And then they write up a story. And you can easily do this. You can write up a story find supporting evidence in your intro to support that hypothesis. So and you're that, selling narrative rather yeah. than the actual process. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's easy to, I think there's a pressure in science communication. We're seeing what the failures in this have, like how this can yeah. really fail um, with COVID and how like research has been, like preliminary research has been uh, disseminated and talked about. Mm -hmm. um, 
but right, like that's a very easy example of how things like that can um, really spiral and how you need to be really careful. Like there were the preliminary hydrochloroquine, is that how you say it? Never said it out loud. Hydrochloroquine? Yeah, that thing. Um, I don't know. The stuff that we should inject into ourselves? Exactly. Um, or is that just, that's sunlight, right? Sunlight as well. Um, just harness it into yourself. Exactly. Um, and so that's like, that was an early hypothesis and the confidence in which it was communicated. You know, obviously it was by a small subset, but I think that's just the example where things can really spiral out of control and there's a conversation that needs to be had and I'm sure we'll talk about this later with science communication is like you need to be confident in your role as a professional which you also need to be you also need to confidently explain in an open way how you reach the conclusion and what um what that means for future work and for real life application um, yeah and again I really I'm one of the things I'm really impressed with is 538 um they have like pivoted in the way they communicate about their own methods and really yeah yeah I, I you know I think they've always been pretty good about talking about how their methods differ without you know revealing quote like the secret sauce for yeah. why their stuff is better um but they've also pivoted to how they explain their processes to like the general public oh and okay see that in their like electoral modeling which I think is really fascinating um and so I, you know, we'll talk again, we'll talk about this later, not sound like a broken record, but <laughs> I think like open science and science communication are like closely tied. And yeah. um, we were talking right before we started recording about one person who I think has a, his, who really illuminates the major failures in open science and how it can affect things um, in social science, mm -hmm. which is uh, Brian Wasing. Boom, 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 boom. This episode of this is brought to you by Zotero. What is Zotero? Zotero is a person. Boom, 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 boom. When did you first hear about Brian Waysink, Wensink? I think it was a little bit later in my journey to becoming more of an open scientist. Like I started with that pre-registration stuff and got on board there and then I ended up taking a course in open science and reproducibility and replicability and then attended like a local conference about it or workshop thing. And it was during that time I found out about James Heathers and Dan Quintana of the Everything Hurts podcast and started reading more about like data thugs, which take that for what it's worth. I think they've they've been named a lot of different things too, like data <laughs> terrorists or things like that. But because I think it was uh, James Heathers and some other individuals who have looked at, I think his name, I think Jim Brown. Nick Brown. Nick Brown, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the two of them that uncovered Wayne Sink. Is that right? I think, uh, yeah, I think so. Well, there. so there's a group of, of people and the one that I can always remember is James Heathers uh, that specialize in error detection. And this has been a whole new area of research in like meta science, the study of science or meta site, where 
they are looking at published data and looking for inconsistencies. And this is fascinating to me that they were able to identify inconsistencies in Wayne Sink's reports just by like the published work that there were inconsistencies there. And then also like recollection of data or re like distribution of data sets or just flat out fraud. And so that was really when I started hearing more about it was in this like error detection kind of way. What about you? Yeah, I feel like uh, there are principles of open science that had been like floating around from a few undergraduate classes I took, um, which okay. I think is great. Uh, and I know one of the professors at Cornell um, is really passionate about open science. And so I think that's really cool. He's also the major R professor. That's uh, awesome. So you probably get along well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that was a big part of it. Learning about people from my institution, um, like Daryl, them, and Brian Wiesink, like being the people who really inspired a lot of conversations about the problems mm -hmm. made me think, you know, like it doesn't, it has these like ripple down effects, like it, or ripple effects where like it affects grad students in the lab. Like it destroys our confidence in other people's work. And so it's this mix of unfortunately like personal accountability. Um, mm -hmm. I remember reading in the New York times, they did this profile of Amy Cuddy and I think the one thing with that article was it made me like worry or feel like, oh no, like people are out to get me. And um, it painted mm -hmm. the people who are doing these like efforts of error detection in a bad light. Um, Cause yeah. it made it sound like they're out to get you. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, like, and I think that can be really intimidating. And you're, I think as like a new student and worried about making statistical mistakes that might accidentally not get caught and then publicly embarrassing myself. Um, but that's not their goal. Like their goal is like, oh, if you made a mistake, like we're gonna, like we wanna ask you about it so you can correct yeah. it. And if you like flip the thinking from like, I got you to a, hey, we all wanna do the right thing, then you know, it saves you from being lumped in with people who might be more sinister or not mm -hmm. sinister. That sounds maybe a little bit stronger who might be more disingenuous. Um, or, um, you know, I think the thing that really drives me nuts about the like Brian Wasing stuff is he's not taken any, like he hasn't really taken any accountability for his, um, what is appears to be fraud. Um, yeah. And don't sue me. Um, I don't know if I can say, but anyway. Um, that totally well, like, just like alleviates you from all legal action. All the people are going to be listening to this. Uh, slander. Um, but, you know, like my impression and the way it seemed to me listening to the, uh, or following the like stuff around Ryan Waysink is like he got called out. It's not even clear whether he did his most famous experiment, the disappearing soup thing. Um, mm -hmm because it might be mechanically impossible. Uh, <laughs> Don't bring physics <laughs> into like this. Question, which is wild. Um, and in following that, I was like, oh, so he didn't, it's not like, a, oh, they were out to get him and they caught him in a big mistake that he was trying to cover up. There was like repeated fraud and his mm -hmm. papers have been retracted. And he's said, oh, I've made some errors, but not that he's frauded people. He still uh, defends his work as being sound. Yeah. But the, like, the sad part is, is like, of course we'll never know because he, like, he is unreliable. Um, he 
you know, undermined his students, his graduate students' work, mm-hmm. um, undermined other nutritionists' work. And you still hear a lot about his findings in popular, maybe not popular press anymore, but, you know, it's not pulled from popular press articles. You could probably still find that. His stuff yeah. about portion size and things like that uh, was incredibly popular at the time. And like parents were talking about it, right? You were saying, yeah, like, no, you know, I, about those conversations. Like I was just, the other day it just popped into my head as I was like getting dinner and I was like oh yeah there was that study about smaller eating less with smaller plates and then I was like hang on that's not right <laughs> or like how can I <laughs> how can I trust that yeah or the like x-ray carrots like I remember seeing yep. the posters while I was an undergraduate like explaining and I was like oh that's really interesting as I walked by and you know, I just kind of internalized that because I'd like to think that I was at an institution where they were doing good work. And, yeah. um, you know, institutions aren't perfect, but, you know, their reputation comes under fire when this kind of stuff happens. So I do kind of hope that, I think at an institutional level, you really should buy into open science because it makes your own university stronger. And it also, I think, pads you like and protects you and the case that like someone does something bad you are like openly saying openly saying um you're openly saying that like it goes against the principles of your institution um and hopefully might lead to paying less people to take an early retirement or administrative leave leave for uh things they did that weren't correct yeah i think it's it's like a an interesting piece coming from that like systems level approach. It's really, and we'll talk about how we can implement these things within ourselves. And I think you and I have have tried to do that and continue to integrate open science practices in what we do. When it comes to the university, like there is a transition period that can happen where you realize a lot of the things that people were doing were not up to a certain standard. And then what do you do with that? Like, how do you respond to faculty members who are tenured, who have done things that may not be outright fraud? They may not be, they're just not at a level that you would want them to be at. Right. And then like, what can you do? You don't want to bring attention to it. And then you're going to get fined. You're going to get, the university is going to get knocked and nobody's going to want to come there. You're going to get less faculty members and like, it's but a big... institutionally, do you want to be the institution that like allowed the Stanford prison experiment, which is also just in addition to not being like ethically good, um, it's also bad science and yes. it, not, it, it was not empirical. It's this incredibly problematic study, which, uh, what's his name, continues to profit off of, but also Zimbardo? like, had, yeah, Philip Zimbardo, yeah. he's yeah. my enemy. Um, oh, keep man. that in the reporting. <laughs> Going public, take that. Um, Yeah, he's on my, he's, you know, admittedly lower tier. Don't bother Hmm. with him. But yeah, yeah, he's on my list of nemeses. Uh, But yeah, I think people like Philip Zimbardo, like they have an impact on the culture. People falsely like credit people who don't live and breathe in the psych world, who know better, like cite the Stanford prison experiment as this example of, human cruelty. Um, Milgram's experiments like um, were scientifically, I think they were, I, my impression. I haven't heard like, anything about it um, otherwise. 
but like people use those kinds of things and they build their own evidence within society to just to talk about things and um, interpret things. And I think there's a big responsibility there to, you know, myth bust um, and expect more of your scientists. Yeah. And like, wasn't it the, the marshmallow experiment just was showing oh, that yeah. it, what doesn't replicate. And so it's like, what, what are we doing now? Who are we? Are we a science? I don't know. Right. And like, that's, I mean, that's the other thing of open science, right? It's not just like preventing fraud. It's also just being like, it's also building, uh, looking at the literature and replication and, uh, what's the other non-replication? What's the other R word? Um, Replicability? Yeah. Replicability. (laughs) Wait, is that it? Yeah. There's replication. Or reproducibility, sorry. Reproducibility, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which I can never keep. What are, what's, uh, what is the difference? Which one is which? I'm. So replication is like you are collecting new data to try to confirm the previously claimed statements. So you're going out, you're getting a new sample, you're doing all the study again, and then you're seeing, do these match? And there's lots of discussion around how to, determine if it's like replicated um and then reproducibility which is also a big issue is if somebody were to ask you to reproduce your results given the same data could you and that's where like r and open science comes in here's the thing i think those should be switched so i'm sure that at a later episode, we can talk about how I think mittens should be gloves and gloves are mittens. Um, what? It's just, okay, just like quick tangent. So mittens should be mittens should be gloves because the word mittens has like sticky um, letters that are like fingers, and glove is like a round word, much like the shape of a what people call a mitten, but should be a glove. This is like some synesthesia stuff. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, no, like so. People who are on my side, like, just just know I support you in the mitten-glove debate. But also, I think reproducibility, because when you reproduce, it's not like you make a same child every time. It's like a different combination of your genetic, your DNA. Replication, you're looking to make a new, a replicate of the original. I'm just saying. I think I, I like for to... a while I felt bad about my confusion on this, but much like the mitten glove debacle, I now feel fully justified in thinking that they should switch those definitions. But you're trying to replicate the previously established results and then reproduce. You're trying to get the same results. Yeah, I so guess you're, if you you're coming from. I'm reading I'm yeah that's true but like I mean I guess it's like if you produce and then you they want you to reproduce your that like kind of can make sense in my brain yeah I just like to say I'm an, <laughs> I was an English minor and so uh everyone should defer to my expertise on this uh, <laughs> yes this is the kind of high-minded conversation and debate you'll get hashtag <laughs> gloves are mittens mittens are gloves Mittens are gloves, gloves are mittens. I feel actually, I feel very strongly about that. And shout out to my sister, who was the first one to bring this into my uh, orbit correctly. <laughs> Just as I feel passionate about my hatred of Phillips and Bardo, I also feel passionate. My interests are varied. 
Yeah, we're going to have, once we finally get merch, that's going to be one of our first shirts is mittens or gloves, gloves or mittens. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, Mowgli, thank you so much for joining us. So you're here to talk to us to talk about another um, product that people could use. Yeah, OSF is pretty great. So yeah, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in OSF? Oh, Thank you, Mowgli. Uh, you're passionate about open science and you wanted to figure out a way to front load your work to make you a better, more efficient, and also open scientist. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So what's your favorite part about OSF? Oh, oh, the fact that it just, like, it's easy to use. It's really intuitive. That's cool. Anything else for us, Mowgli? All right, well, thank you for joining us today. Boom, 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 boom. So I guess we can, because we've gone on for a little bit of time on, yeah. the, on what is open science, kind of meandering, to be honest. It's fine. Um, yeah, that's, but that's what you can check out our, you can check out our blog post and our old Zoom is set up um, yeah, about YouTube. open science. Yeah, it's on, up on YouTube um, to hear us talk a little more cohesively about this. Yeah. Um, but to get to a functional portion, not, this is all functional. I'm so sorry. Um, don't apologize for things that we're doing. It's great. Uh, to defer to your expertise and learn from you. Um, oh, so, this is the transition to me answering questions. Yes. Okay, yes. got it. Got it. Smooth. <laughs> um, how did you start bringing in open science into your own practices? I know it probably started with your PI. Um, having you, well, you already said it started with your PI, having you submit OSF yeah. uh, pre-registration. Um, but how have you, like, I, I know you've taken that and run with it and done other things. So can you talk a little bit about that? So I started with, yeah, getting integrated into open science through the open science framework, which is part of the Center for Open Science, established by Brian Nosek, who is seems to be an awesome guy, maybe future uh, guest. Friend of the pod. Yeah, sure. Everybody's a friend of the pod except Wayne Sink and Zimbardo. Zimbardo. Um, but reading more about that process that he came to establishing the Center for Open Science, that was a part of it. Like I said, I also took a class in replicability and reproducibility and like a workshop. And it was just, there were things that just made so much sense to me. And then integrating that also with my love of R and all things related to R and R studio, everything just seemed to like work cohesively and synergistically. Maybe not that word, but that sounds nice. It's, yeah, it's uh, fun to say. <laughs> do you feel like your interest in R came about from an open science perspective? That's a leading question, but I'm curious whether like part of that objection, part of your leading question, <laughs> leading the witness. <laughs> uh, I think so. I, I think because like we've talked about this before, but I didn't always like stats. Stats was stats and me didn't get along. I liked math. I was big into math when I was younger. Um, 
that sounds weird. Like it was a uh, like, hey kids, you want to do some math? <laughs> like a band. I was big into. Oh yeah. Math. <laughs> uh, but I I really liked math, and so I figured that stats would follow that. And then when I took it in undergrad and then first year grad, it was not as much fun, and I didn't like it as much. It felt very mysterious, and the, I think it was the way that it was presented that it was all in SPSS. And it felt very like hand wavy and don't look at the man behind the curtain kind of performative piece in a way where you would click all these buttons. And then like, if you didn't hit a checkbox, then you wouldn't get a certain result or a certain thing. And then like that process, I could never follow and repeat it. So it felt very just like, Hey, I'm going to click all these buttons. And I know that's not what it, what it is, but, and you can have scripts, so don't come at me in my DMs saying that. Um, all of the people who are SPSS All the SPSS fans. Yeah. But it, it just felt very like, I don't know, I can't think of a word that, it was It was just like, things were happening and I didn't understand it. I didn't like you it. You could learn the sequences without learning why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Very focus level. And then R, it was, you had to be very specific about the things that you wanted and it was very clear in my head uh, of how, like, here's a linear regression and you actually write the equation for a line and it all made sense. I'm like, this is great. And so I, I think it, it was more of like my understanding and wanting to be transparent about the process that that was the reason why I didn't like SPSS or other programs that I needed that transparency. I also think when I think about that, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how open science, beyond all the other great things it does, is I think it makes you organize and clarify your thoughts ahead of time. So you're not yeah. just irresponsibly, and R does the same thing. You're thinking about things in a very methodical and thoughtful way, which is how science should be done. And in the beginning, it can be a little more time intensive, but it's also, you know, the other great thing about it and something uh, to, you know, I, I admire about you and hope to, you know, take on as a grad student is I think you do a lot of front loading of your work and that is time intensive for the start, but then it can also, once you're rolling, like it gives you a certain momentum at the analysis stage. Cause I've, from talking to a lot of students, I know a big portion is like, you have your idea, you get it set up, the analysis portion takes a while, and then this write-up portion takes a forever period of time. <laughs> and yeah. part of the OSF submission things and being clear about your hypotheses up front is you can write an introduction and you can write your methods up front. And that helps get the work done a lot sooner, which I think is a great thing yeah and it like you what you were saying at the beginning of how much you like writing the nsf and you're thinking about all these ideas and a pre-registration really turns that up where you could you think through and you're you're given the space to do this at the front end to say well if i measure emotion regulation this way and depression this way what could possibilities be like, do I use a mean? Do I dichotomize? Do I do a median split? And you can think through all the steps and then the implications that it has for your conclusions. And I think that that part I really like 
in conversation. I don't like writing about those things. <laughs> I also wonder, like, it also takes, like, you know, I think when you have an answer for yourself yeah. from the analysis portion, it's then there's less of a, I, th- I think maybe I'm just, you know, generalizing from my own experience. It's like, oh, like, you have your answer. Mission accomplished. You're done. And so there's less of mm. a momentum there as well because you've answered that question for yourself. So the paper write-up, that's for other people. You do have your answer to the question yeah. um, that you have, that potentially burning question that you designed a study project on. Uh, but if you front load your work and do that right up beforehand, think about the implications, it's going to be better, but it's also might be easier on you. And so selfishly, I want things to be easier on me. Yes. And we haven't even talked about registered reports, which are like pre-registrations on steroids, where you basically, you write the entire manuscript without collecting any data. You have all these implications. So the results section is literally a choose your own adventure where you get to think through all the possibilities of if this result, if this regression is positive and significant, the next sentence will be this. If not, then this. You submit that to a journal, they review it before you collect any data and you get to get reviews back. So you're not wasting anybody's time running a whole study, wasting money, and then you get a preliminary acceptance without even knowing if your results are positive or negative, which is awesome. That file drawer effect. Yeah. Yeah. That is, these are, these are things that Kate and I talk about a lot and think about a lot, and we will probably have many episodes about this um, because we're getting close to the end, right? (laughs) Yeah. I think it would be really cool to do a registered report. I do think it would be awesome. I always have these like ideas that are never going to happen, but um, and that other people had before. So not saying they're original, um, but would be with the NIH, like you'd have to, like when you got a grant or you got an R01, like it would be linked to a registered report or something like that, because then, you know, you're using governmental funds to do the perfect kind of research, the gold standard. Yeah. There are other things that I think NIH is trying to do with data repositories. So now if you get a grant. Data repository. Yes. They, in theory, and if they are set up well, it's easy. But that is not the case. Well, that's not what I was. I was going to bring up the fact that I think confidentiality or it's hard to remain anonymous if you have shared participants and shared participant numbers like the repository can have. Oh yeah. I think that, yeah, that is about a specific project, I think. Yeah. Uh, No, no. Like a lot of the, Oh, um, I think if you get an R01, you have to do, right. Like these days you have to um, have this data that you upload to data reporter or whatever, and you can create a, um, it's called a GUID uh, or a pseudo GUID, I know. Um, but if you have a GUID, you need their, I think you, I might be wrong on this, I'm pretty sure I'm correct though. Um, you need their date of birth as well as their city of birth. And so um, I think the more stuff you add and their goal for the GUIDs is, ugh, it sounds gross to say, um, yeah. is to like be able to like share that information if they do multiple studies. But it just, you know, it really um, takes away the de-identified portion of uh, 
the goals. So probably won't be an issue considering, but it's just something I think about with, I know NIH is trying to do things in a more open way or sharing a more global way, but that's something I worry about with that. Yeah. I think data repositories as a whole, like there are some fields that do it really well. Um, and I think for some reason we are very behind in that. And Where aren't, isn't psychology the newest science? Yes, we're just little little babies, just new. little infants just rolling around trying okay. to teeth and no, we're just new. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're not infants. Oh, it feels like it sometimes. That's just me. I'm delegitimizing this field. Sorry, sorry. I'm in it, so I can't. It's okay. I have friends who are psychologists. <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunities for cool new things. And we'll definitely, we'll talk more about open science a lot more until everyone's nauseous um, or not listening. Just don't listen. Uh, that's the solution. Just like download and play it and that's it. Because I think that's what the Let's metrics. Yeah. yeah, we want to see those okay. downloads go up. And the more, the more people we get, the more likely we'll be able to get that merch and be able to get those shirts for you that say gloves or mittens, mittens or gloves. Actually, that's good motivation for me. Uh, <laughs> Meg's gonna start uh, driving up the downloads. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, my, Meg, my sister, um, the head activist on the mitten glove club mitten debate. <laughs> so uh, to our future direction. So Dustin, what do you recommend this week? Yeah, so if you have been able to to review some of our other UCAN grad school stuff on YouTube or our blogs, you will see that I'm a big NK Jemison fan. And I just started reading her latest novel. Um, it is called The City We Became. And it is a, it's a little different from the other stuff that she's written, but it's basically this sci-fi book where what would happen if cities themselves were alive that there was some component to them that were like living and birthed and so it focuses on new york city and there is like this event that happens and then each of the boroughs of new york have like an avatar that's like they embody the city and then it's all about like them finding that out and then realizing that there are these alternate realities that are trying to attack them it's like, Whoa. yeah, it's really interesting. That sounded disingenuous, but that actually sounds cool. <laughs> when I said, well. So definitely check that out and all of her other stuff. I will probably re-recommend all of her things because they are wonderful and great. And she seems like a really awesome person. Maybe we'll get her on the podcast. Yeah. My what do you got? Yeah. So just don't need to be asked. Um, is the first is I bought and I'm really excited to read Entitled by Kate Mann. Um, I've been thinking about corrective narratives and, um, you know, the history of psychology is, you know, deeply racist and sexist and misogynist. Um, and so a big thing in my research and what I hope to do is, you know, being critical about the ways that we think about the history of our field and the how sound our findings and our theories are um hot take i think did i already say this hot take i think the field would have been um just as okay without freud 
we would have ended up basically in the same position. What are you talking about? He was the foundation to everything that we do. Psychology. Yeah. Without him, uh, like psychology just emanates from yeah, him. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Freud. Um, and yeah. just gonna stick by that. Freud, Phillips and Bardo. Take Freud that. can't be ne- nemesis, but you know. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to read Entitled. Uh, also obviously has a bearing on how uh, we think about things in modern day events yep. and applications outside of science. So I'm excited for that. And then also I've been listening to All Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. And that's really scary, a little scary. Um, I, less scared than I thought I would be. However, I was listening to it and uh, someone accidentally walked into my apartment today. And that was a little bit jarring if you guys know what All Be Gone in the Dark is about. Um, it's about the uh, Golden State Killer. And so that wasn't great timing. Um, yeah, wouldn't be. But other than that, it's been really, it's an interesting thing to listen to. And I'm a big fan of true crime. And so it's um, very compassionate telling about the victims. And it's uh, really fascinating. So those are my recommendations. Yeah. And didn't that, that book prompted them to reopen the case? I think they'd already been working on the case, but there were needs she found or something like that. But um, yeah, right after uh, Michelle McNamara's uh, unfortunate death, um, they caught the Golden State Killer and he just recently um, was convicted and sentenced to all those life sentences. And I'm really happy for all the victims who uh, have some closure Mm -hmm. and that that man is very safely behind bars. yeah, it's kind of scary. But uh, I, yeah, I think it's a really, it's really compelling narrative about her own work around that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Thanks again for listening to another episode of You Can Grad School. We're looking forward to hearing from you guys. You can follow us on under, at can underscore grad on Twitter. Um, and there you'll also see our own Twitter handles. And then you can also find our content on our website and on YouTube. Dustin, our website name is... You can gradschool.netlify.app. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ho, ho, ho. The You Can Grad School is on a vacation.